This is an AMI podcast. Hey there, this is Kelly McDonald, co-host of Kelly and Company on AMI-audio. On our show, we're always discussing the latest events and happenings in the blind and low vision community. Our regional contributors across Canada work tirelessly to keep you updated on events you can't miss and keep you connected to your community. So don't miss out. Listen to Kelly and Company wherever you listen to good podcasts. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. For some people with disabilities, home care allows them to live independently in the community. These services were under strain before COVID-19, with workers being overworked and underpaid. During the pandemic, home care supports have diminished across the country, leaving people with disabilities, their families and loved ones, scrambling for temporary solutions. There is an urgent need to rethink the delivery of adequate and comprehensive home care. For many people, the provision of home care makes the difference between living in our communities and being hospitalized. Moreover, as Canadians, we take pride in our social safety net. Today, we discuss the ways in which Ability New Brunswick is supporting its clients. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. And welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joyita Gupta. I'm the host of the program, and it's great to have you with us. And I hope wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you're staying safe and you're keeping well. Today, we want to talk about home care services for people with disabilities. We've had a lot of really important conversations about the ways in which the pandemic has changed lives for Canadians generally, but for people with disabilities specifically. Very early on in the pandemic, I'd say probably in March, I read a shocking article about a young boy with cerebral palsy in China who passed away in his apartment because of the lockdown in Wuhan. And the fact that his parents, despite making pleas, could not find someone to help this particular individual with necessary home care supports, medication and toileting. It was a heartbreaking story, which at the time made headlines. But I think as we deal with our own lockdown in Canada and our own pandemic, this question remains salient. My guest today is Haley Flero, the executive director of Ability New Brunswick, which has been around for the last 60 years, providing a range of services and programmings for Canadians in New Brunswick living with mobility disabilities. And so while they themselves may not be in the business of providing home care, they do know the communities really well, and they know the issues really well. It's my great pleasure to welcome Haley to The Pulse. Hello, and so glad you could be with us today. Thank you for having me. Let me start out by asking you about your name. What is it about Ability New Brunswick that spoke to you? It's such a positive name. Is that what you were trying to go for with your name? It was. Um, We actually were founded nationally by um, veterans and um, started out with our names, uh, our name with the roots from the Canadian Paraplegic Association. And uh, that was, you know, over 50, but, you know, over 60 years ago. And um, with, uh, in 2011, with a lot of pressure from our service participants living with a mobility disability, uh, we changed our name to Ability New Brunswick to better reflect uh, the scope of our work, to have a more positive name. Um, and it actually resulted in the number of people getting referred to us uh, increasing sixfold because, mm-hmm. you know, if you ask someone, you know, would you like to talk to someone from the Paraplegic Association or 
would like to talk to someone from Ability New Brunswick. There's just a, a really positive connotation that um, associated with the word ability. And it also helps to fight some of that stigma associated with the word disability, right? Absolutely. And and our population is those that are impacted by mobility disabilities. So, you know, it could be those living with stroke or uh, spinal cord injury or amputation or cerebral palsy or, you know, there's there's over uh, there's a couple hundred uh, mobility disability types in our in our data management system. So we wanted it to be broad enough that, um, you know, people could relate to it. Mm -hmm. Now, I've heard based on my reading that New Brunswick has the country's second highest incidence of disability in the population of the province. You're a provincial organization, so how prominently do mobility disabilities, and you've already told us this, this encompasses many different conditions, but how prominently do do mobility disabilities feature in, in uh, in that disability population? A great question. So New Brunswick does have the second highest rate of disability in Canada at 26.7% of our population. And that doesn't include those um, living in long-term care homes or in First Nation communities because they're not captured by that data. Uh, Mobility is the most prevalent disability type, second only to flexibility and pain. Um, And it it represents about 73,000 New Brunswickers living with that disability type. And are these 73,000 New Brunswickers with disabilities largely concentrated in urban areas or are they a little bit more spread out across the province? For, for our organization, we would take a look at our own demographics and um, it always surprises my colleagues throughout Canada that often say that the majority of their you know, service participants' clients are in, rural, in urban areas, but ours are almost exactly 50-50. Um, mm-hmm. in rural and urban communities in New Brunswick. And, and you know, that, that really makes sense uh, to me, given the large geography of our province, but also our service delivery model, which is really a kitchen table service. So there's no barrier to accessing our service, whether you live in an urban or rural area. Mm-hmm. And so speaking of accessing your services, what about right now during the pandemic and COVID-19? Have you been able to provide some of your services virtually to clients? Definitely. Um, our organization, as part of our strategic plan, had had um, an information technology plan that kind of wrapped up uh, a couple years ago with our, our first, you know, a couple years ago with some primary activities to ensure that all the staff had laptops with cameras, that mm-hmm. we, um, you know, used uh, internal messaging system uh, systems to, you know, to chat, share resources, to share success stories. Uh, we we all have cell phones and iPads, and so it was actually the day that we had to kind of physically shut the door, assign just one essential staff to direct phone calls each day, uh, we were able to transfer our services to to our home-based offices. Um, And, you know, that first couple weeks, we made wellness checks to over 350 people on our Mm -hmm. rosters um, and then went from there to look at what their current goals were with us and how they could be achieved during COVID-19. And a lot of people had new goals, too, uh, goals because their natural support networks, um, you know, were impacted. They were more isolated. Food security became an issue. There was job losses. So uh, we, we had to be a lot more creative, but the transition wasn't as steep as we thought it would be. Um, but we did miss getting in front of our service participants. I'm really proud to say that on June 6th, uh, we began our kitchen table meetings again with strict protocols, including masks and pre-screening before we go to home. So we're pretty mm-hmm. pleased of how we've been able to weather through this and still be a really good support for people. And what are these kitchen table meetings? They sound great. 
Uh, that's it, it, that word. I can't even claim the concept is is something that I th- that I thought about. It really came from our service participants living with a mobility disability. In that, you know, um, it, it's like the old outreach uh, models that we talk about. That mm-hmm. you know, uh, services are best delivered in people's spaces and their homes. So you can see what you know what the surroundings, the environment, the equipment they have, the type of housing, and really dig deeper into goals. So uh, we we like to be around kitchen tables versus you know f- making the population come in to our office environments um, because it gives us greater insight into you know what their their successes are. Um, you know, lot you can, lot. It's a lot easier to develop rapport with people when you can see around their homes, see their trophies, their photos, uh, their hobbies. Um, so uh, we really refer to our set of outreach. It's a kitchen table service. I'm speaking to Haley Flero, the executive director of Ability New Brunswick. Haley, one of the things that I was struck by in looking into your organization is just the range of people you serve your youngest client could be as young as four years old. Your oldest, your oldest client could be as old as 93. That's quite a spectacular range. What are some of the issues that have become salient for this community during the pandemic? Another really great question. Actually, as of last week, our most senior service participant is 108, a woman wow. that borrowed one of our adapted tricycles. So it's uh, the, the range <laughs> continues to grow. Um, certainly, we have seen some issues specific to certain age brackets from youth to, to seniors we work with, and 50% of the population we work with are seniors, so that's quite interesting. Um, but, but trends have been, you know, with, with the school closures, a lot of families really rely on the school as a support for obviously their child's learning but for respite support so mm-hmm. it's it's put, uh, some families have had to you know uh, take leaves of their jobs to care for their children now that they were home during the pandemic which has been a big stress on families and has meant a loss of income mm-hmm. we've seen individuals that have lost their jobs or been lay off, laid off we had a high number of layoffs in new brunswick so it meant less income and things like food security and you know just paying bills um, were big issues our food bank networks are are really helpful but they often don't have the types of foods our population needs um, because many of our population lives with chronic health issues. So we bought, uh, through a compassion fund we had, we bought a lot of you know, whole chickens and fresh pork and eggs and milk and, and mm-hmm. uh, vegetables, uh, fruit and vegetables for people as part of the, the pandemic because pandemic, that was a big need. Um, home support workers, we had a crisis in New Brunswick already before COVID, um, and we, we still have a, a crisis where uh, there's a lot of home support workers. Some of them, you know, didn't weren't able to return to work. Some of our clients were, were not comfortable having workers in their home, um, agencies not being able to recruit people to cover shifts. Um, uh, you know, some of the federal benefits provided a better wage than home support worker wages in New Brunswick. So people, um, you know, to protect themselves and their safety went on the, the CERB. Uh, so there was a, a, a really complicated set of issues. And, and assistive technology, a lot of our suppliers weren't allowed to go into homes, occupational therapists not able to meet with clients for periods. So we had people needing a lot of devices to help them be independent at home. And um, we did a lot of work and creative work to try and help get those solutions in place because you can't wait six to eight months for a walker if you need a walker Mm -hmm. or if an adapted kitchen tools like an adapted cutting board and a salad spinner and an electric can opener because your home support worker isn't there to help you with meals are helpful then we went out and bought them so Mm -hmm. uh, there was lots of that type of 
of problem solving that happened. But the laundry list was long. People, you know, were, were really worried about their health and uh, many people couldn't afford the um, the cleaning supplies needed to, to help protect themselves, which was an issue as well. So we have a big laundry list of some of the things that were, were big issues during the pandemic. I think uh, we'll come back to this point about home care workers after yeah. the break. But just before I let you go uh, and we hit, we take that break, uh, one of the things that we've noticed in Toronto is a, a whole community of people that has sprung up to fill the gap left by social services and government services. There, there's the caremongering TO group that's been doing some really good work. Haley, are you? Uh, uh, is your agency at all dependent on volunteers at this time to maybe do meal drop-offs or uh, connect people with individuals who could help out with things around the house, make grocery runs and things like that? Uh, certainly our network of volunteers has been called on and our staff have done a great job to be more nimble, doing a lot of curbside meetings and drop-offs and things like that. Uh, but we've been really impressed with how nimble nonprofits have been. It wasn't mm-hmm. It was not an option for our groups to sit home and leave these populations behind. Nonprofits in Canada generally, um, in social services, take care of, you know, I don't like the word vulnerable, but it's true, uh, you know, a very vulnerable population. So it was just amazing to see the nonprofits around us step up and say, okay, we need to be more creative and deliver more food security. We need to be able to, to fill transportation gaps. So uh, we certainly have people seen people step, step up, but also, as is true in New we take care of our neighbors and we really mm-hmm. push that message check on your neighbors if a neighbor offers help ask them to do a delivery for you to pick up your medications and we saw and, and we're doing a survey with our clients right now um, about the impact of covid we're hearing a lot of great success stories of new relationships new connections and neighbors and communities that stepped up to help people so um, when we tell the covid story in canada and new brunswick it's really important for us to talk about those stories because they you know neighbors volunteers filled gaps on delivery transportation home support services they made meals. Um, you know, one of my staff members was making cookies all the time for one of the food <laughs> delivery services. You know, that, that, that's what people did and that's what people are doing. And without that, um, you know, I really worry about uh, this, uh, the, uh, you know, populations like those in poverty, people with a disability, because um, our social services have been quite quiet from a government mm-hmm. perspective. You mentioned that you were undertaking a survey at the moment. What more can you tell us about it? Excellent. So as we started to quickly see trends that our population was experiencing during COVID-19, we um, uh, we collaborate a lot with the Stan Cassidy Center for Rehabilitation, our Provincial Tertiary Rehabilitation Center, especially the research chief, uh, Dr. Colleen O'Connell. And Colleen and I had a chat and said, you know what, we need to do a, a quick survey and get the voices of the population weighing in on this because we need to help, you know, advise uh, government during this pandemic. And we also need to to work on planning for future pandemics. So mm-hmm. uh, we, we decided to do a phone survey. Um, may not sound completely accessible, but we found a lot of surveys in Canada were actually online for COVID. So we said, let's take all of the Ability and Be Active service participants, call, um, you know, place a call to them so we can dive deep into some of the um, issues impacting um, those with a mobility disability during COVID. And we're probably going to have to do some secondary surveys. Um, you know, one of the things... Uh, the voices of parents, um, we want to capture that. So we may do a second survey of parents of children with a mobility disability. Um, newcomers as well, 
well. Um, some of our new Calmers that and uh, families that we work with that maybe um, their first language isn't English or French. Uh, there's a real lack of interpretation services in New Brunswick, so prioritizing interpreters for research isn't mm-hmm. a big uh, a big priority, which I get. Uh, but we want to capture that voice because we have a high number of of Syrian families, for example, that work with uh, our organization. Uh, mm-hmm. So there are some limitations, but we're just finishing up all of the phone calls and we're going to be analyzing uh, that data and producing some infographics and using it for our presentations and collaboration with government to to try and you know improve um, supports and services and policies for people with a mobility disability um, now and towards planning in future pandemics. That's a really good, it sounds really positive. And you know, I work at a nonprofit when I'm not hosting this show. And one of the things we've done is the phone survey, because people love to talk and you sort of end up with all this really wholesome data. And then of course, you can follow up with other types of surveys as well. Let's chat a little bit about home care. So in our first, you know, earlier on in the conversation, you mentioned that there was already a crisis in New Brunswick. And this pandemic has really shown us how the system is almost coming apart at the scenes and deepening the crisis. How bad has it been? So before COVID, it was bad. Uh, the, we have a significant home support worker shortage in New Brunswick, as does the rest of Canada. But like I mentioned um, off the top, you know, with our high, second highest rate of disability, and we actually have the oldest population in Canada, uh, our indicators and our, our population is quite unique. So we have more demand per capita on the system for this type of service than most other provinces. So it's uh, home support services to help people live as independently as possible at home, avoid unnecessary hospitalizations, avoid unnecessary hospital placements. No one under 65, uh, sorry, nursing home placements. No one under mm-hmm. 65 should be in a nursing home. We we need these services. And very, unfortunately, it's quite a low wage in New Brunswick where we often have people leaving the sector to take jobs in the fast food service delivery uh, because the wages are better and so are the benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it, we, there is work happening in New Brunswick to try and promote it and recruit early and educate youth about the importance of this as a sector, but it, it, it in fact isn't enough. There, there needs to be a significant conversation and a shift towards better wages for this real essential service in New Brunswick. Another trend we see is that our agencies don't have the capacity to serve everyone. They may not have an agency workers in rural areas, or they may not, um, because of their liability insurance, be able to provide a level of care like tracheotomy care, ventilator Mm -hmm. care. Uh, you know, bowel care, urinary care, ostomy care. Uh, so they re- refuse to be able to provide the service so people have no choice but to hire privately. And about 60% of Ability MB service participants um, have to hire privately because they can't find workers through an agency. Mm-hmm. And of course, this also speaks to your point about why so many uh, personal support workers now choose to go on the Canada Emergency Relief Benefit or CERB rather than continue to work when the wages are so low. The other piece of around this that I've been wondering about is just as a means to curtail the spread of infection, how were, how likely was it that personal support workers were given PPE or personal protective equipment as they went from home to home for those people who were continuing to work? 
And that was one of the key problems. Those that um, were are hired by agencies were provided with equipment and cleaning supplies from the agencies. Private workers who make less than agency workers were given nothing, you know, from government that provides their funding. So uh, it was either the client that had to come up with those materials or the worker. It was an added cost. And let me tell you, Ability New Brunswick bought a lot of cleaning supplies, bought a lot of personal protective equipment for that population because, um, you know, the answer from government was no, no, no. Um, And so we were really concerned about, you know, the risk of our population not having access to that. You know, on the top part, you know, the top of this question, you mentioned the CERB. Well, the extended benefits for someone on social assistance in New Brunswick with a disability is $763 a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so how do you live on that? Like, how do you live on the house? Like, people are creative, but it's barely enough to cover your food and rent and mm-hmm. forget personal protective equipment. So, um, you know, it's it, it's also created discussion about the CERB and living wages in Canada. And, you know, I it was a really good benefit to give to people, but it created even more of an inequity and really put people living in poverty, you know, over here versus mm-hmm. in the discussion about financial needs. Now, speaking of people being in poverty, when you think about the rates of disability payments, we've already said that it's not enough for people to live on outside of a pandemic. And with the pandemic, prices on a lot of cleaning supplies have gone up. If you're lucky enough to find Lysol wipes in the first place, those will be quite overpriced. I've seen toilet paper priced at, you know, $12 and some odd cents. It's shocking, really. So is the government of New Brunswick or has the government of New Brunswick actually done anything to provide some supplementary income support to people with disabilities? No, we are one of the few provinces that hasn't taken a, a lead in that area. And again, I think it was a big oversight. And, um, you know, when you look at the New Brunswick statistics, single parents and people with a disability are the most two most impoverished pro, uh, populations in our province and those relying the most on our social programs. So they there needs to be a lens on those populations as we continue planning with government through the pandemic of, you know, what are the unique needs and, and difficulties faced by this population and how can we plan for better? Because, you know, I really feel with the exception and my bias of how well nonprofit organizations have given people a hand up, I really feel like government has, you know, has let them down. In terms of the, the, the letdown piece, what we're seeing with the absence of adequate home care is that often uh, people are being sent to hospitals for, uh, for unnecessary visits and stays, but also, uh, Haley, that the police often gets involved in situations involving people with disabilities, particularly people with intellectual or developmental disabilities. Is that the way forward? Does the police have the resources or the training to adequately deal with these situations? They don't, and neither do our emergency departments or long-term care homes. You know, I'm also director of services here, and we consult every day on on issues impacting our population. I I didn't talk about this one, and I didn't mean to miss it, but, you know, the number of mental health escalations among the population we work with, I'm so thankful for our investment and training in this organization because we've seen some pretty difficult scenarios and stories that we've had to help coach people through, and sometimes with police intervention. Um, you know, it is not, uh, it makes no social sense, health sense, or economic sense for a province to have the safety net be a hospital for someone mm-hmm. that needs better home support. And uh, my team feels terrible when they have to tell someone, if your worker doesn't show up this weekend, call 911. 
mm-hmm. and you know ask the ambulance to to take you to the hospital because they have a high level disability aren't able to you know they can direct their own care but aren't able to move you know um, move or or provide their own personal care then that's the safest option for them and and that's not the answer no and i feel i i do feel what you're saying because i work at a housing and nonprofit and often when someone is in a precarious housing situation about to face eviction i'm the one telling them look you probably need to go to a shelter even though i know that that's not a so- it's it's the only option but it's not a solution right so i i do get where you're coming from let's end this conversation on a positive note though you have a a, a long career in this in this sector and you know you must have some thoughts about the kind of concrete and tangible recommendations that need to be put in place to try and get the people who need the services the your community in a in a much better place post covid-19 so give us a a few of your most pressing recommendations Excellent. So um, one of the things is our, our premier and our government have recognized the, the critical nature of the, the nonprofit sector in New Brunswick. It is a third pillar, um, but we haven't done, we, the global we government, not NGOs, nonprofits, a, a great job at ensuring that, you know, the government has a really clear liaison with the sector. And I don't mean just an individual, but, you know, is it their executive council office? So should the premier's office have both economic and social policy? advisors you know there's some really key work that needs to be done there because even some of the government decisions making is made uh, made during the pandemic i think wow if we had put a social policy lens on that and seen that it was actually going to cost more money to do that um then it was going to have been you know cost more money to do it than save uh, mm-hmm. uh you know without helping people um i'm not explaining that clearly but sometimes there's decisions made that they think are good economic ones and it's actually going to have a greater cost to people with a disability in terms of you know their mental health their uh, you know economic health their their safety so we need to do that's one of the things i've been pushing for and actually met with the premier about is what can we do to make sure that there's direct liaison with the the not not like the nonprofit sector in new brunswick there also needs to be the establishment of a round table on pandemic planning and our most vulnerable citizens and we can come up with a better word but you know that's the word that that, that keeps me up at night cuz at the end of the day the people we've been working with um, that have that have had the most difficulties are those that are very vulnerable in terms of health uh, in food security housing um, all kinds of issues so that's something else that uh, we're really going to use this data to help inform and uh, and talk start the dialogue again with government about um, better planning for these populations so we don't leave them more behind Haley Flero thank you so much for being on the program it's been a pleasure speaking to you Thank you so much. That was Haley Flero, the executive director of Ability New Brunswick, who joined us today to discuss some of the programming and services offered by her organization, as well as the broader public conversation taking place in New Brunswick to support people with disabilities. If you missed any of my conversation with Haley, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. As we wind up here, I'd like to talk about the importance of bringing a social planning discussion to any conversation about pandemic planning and beyond people with disabilities need to be at the center of whatever decisions are made during and after the pandemic we realize that the nature of barriers facing people with disabilities requires an interdisciplinary and cross-sectorial collaboration between different sectors be it government the private sector and the nonprofit as haley pointed out they are the three pillars that hold our society up so i hope that in whatever decision making happens people with disabilities are not only given a seat at the table but that our input is fully taken into consideration 
I'd like to thank Haley Flero for being my guest on the program. The Pulse has a technical producer, that being Nisreen Abdel-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio, with special thanks to Paula Deneen, technical supervisor. We'd love to hear from you as well. You can always write us on Twitter at AMI-audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI. And of course, you can always send us an email, feedback at AMI.ca. Thanks a lot for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.